You may have come to see the reason for singing that particular hymn, Jesus Loves Me, because of our emphasis on our teachers, uh, both here at the church and at the preschool. Uh, and we certainly are thankful for the truths that we just sang, aren't we? Uh, a great theologian in the 20th century <clears throat> was once asked, with all of the things you have learned and studied, what was the most profound thing that you have ever learned? And this great theologian responded by saying, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's pretty good, isn't it? A profound theological truth. Christ loves his lambs, and we are so thankful that he does. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 2. <coughs> Philippians chapter 2, as we read verses 12 through 18 this morning. I have learned, I mentioned this a while back, but I have learned that in the English Standard Version Bibles, there are some places where one uh, printing of the Bible has a different word in a verse than some of the other printings, the same translation. I still haven't figured out why that's so, but you'll probably note that here if you have a different printing from what mine is in one word that will come out, and I'll point that out later in the sermon as well. But let's just listen carefully as we hear the word of God, verses 12 through 18, Philippians chapter two. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, <clears throat> in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, <clears throat> holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Did you encounter any problems this week with receiving mixed messages from someone? Doesn't it happen a lot? Hardly a day goes by when some kind of experience we have with some sort of misunderstanding with someone else. Your boss, for instance, wants you to do more work in less time with the same pay, while at the same time wanting you to relax and spend more time with your family. Right. We can also receive mixed signals of being uh, 
under, uh, to have an understanding of how we're really supposed to live out this life that we now have as believers in Jesus Christ. We find that we are questioning ourselves. Am I supposed to <clears throat> depend solely on God and wait for him to move in me before I reach out in obedience or in witnessing or in doing something that I believe that I might need to do? Or am I just left to myself and it's up to me and I've got to do it all and I've got to muster up the, the strength and the willpower to actually do those things that I know I'm supposed to do but really don't want to do it. What's the answer? Are we to do nothing until he moves us or are we to jump in with both feet and do all that we can, as hard as we can, without waiting for some heavenly prompt to move us along. I'm not thinking about here how we become Christians, of course. We've been trying to remind ourselves of that every time we've looked at Philippians. Paul is not writing to evangelize the people he's writing to. They already are believers in Christ. This is a, a church in the first city in Europe to have a church. Philippi. And Paul is dealing with how they need to continue to grow and obey and serve the Lord as Christ has taught them by word and by example. And so we have to remember that what Paul is saying here is a counsel to us who are followers of Christ. And we do need that counsel to help us understand God's role in our living the Christian life and our role, if any, in living the Christian life. And that's what he talks about here. The answer, of course, is both. We, we need to be responsible to work out our salvation, as he tells us here. But at the same time, we have to remember we're not left to ourselves. God is at work in us so that we can please him in our lives. Now, I broke this down in just uh, simple ways to, to show what Paul is saying here. The first one is activity. As Paul talks to, uh, writes to the, the Christians here, he's pointing out what they need to be doing, what action they need to take as Christians. And so he says there, with a little bit of an introduction that's very important, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation. What does God want us to do with our lives as Christians? And here's the basic answer. Work it out. Work out your salvation. Maybe we need to remember what happens with a lobster when left high and dry, as I understand it, on the rocks there along the seashore, the lobster lacks the sense and the energy to work his way back to the ocean. Instead, he waits for the sea, the tide, to come up to him. And if that tide doesn't come up as far uh, as high as the lobster is on that rock, he'll stay there until he dies. 
although the slightest exertion by the lobster would have saved his own life. So let's don't be like a lobster. Let's don't wait for God to do for us what he has already told us to do. Work out your salvation. Now remember the context here. He has this, begins this verse with therefore. Therefore, my beloved. He's tying in what he has already said, especially what he's just said about Christ. Christ obeyed. He humbled himself and did the Father's will to become a human so that he might attain salvation for us. He acted. And so Paul says, in the light of what Christ has done for you as a humble servant for your sakes, and in the light of the fact that you've been obeying the word of the Lord, <coughs> work out your salvation. And he says to do it, whether I'm there or not, not only in my presence, but even much more, he says, in my absence. I thought about that this week when Paul is saying, look, your responsibility to work out your salvation doesn't depend on whether I'm with you or not. And I thought about the fact, you know, this church doesn't have a pastor right now. He's absent. Now, I'm not blaming that on Todd. He, he's doing what God called him to do. Those things happen. But what I am thinking is, you know, we don't need to we don't need to uh, take it easy because we don't have a pastor right now. We need to be obedient and faithful, humbly serving one another all the more while we are waiting for God's next man to be the pastor of this church. And Paul is using that same idea here. He's saying, you know, you need to be obedient regardless of whether I'm there or not. It doesn't depend on that. It would be a blessing. Paul wants to do it. But you still have to grow in your relationship to the Lord and serve the Lord, whatever the circumstances might be with your church. And it's an imperative. Work out your salvation. It's, it's in the imperative sense. It's a command. This isn't a, a, just a good idea. It's an absolute requirement. You are responsible, Christian, to work out your salvation that God has granted you in his wonderful grace and mercy. And now that's not a conflict with salvation by grace alone. He doesn't say, notice real carefully, he doesn't say work for your salvation or work towards your salvation as if you could somehow do enough good work to merit God forgiving you and bringing you into his kingdom. We know that doesn't happen. We are saved by grace alone, aren't we? Through faith alone, in Christ alone. But he is saying, work out the salvation that God has worked in you and will continue to work in you. And this is a continuous activity. It's in a present, the present tense. Like he's saying, keep on working out your salvation. Salvation is not a vacation. It is a responsibility. 
The Bible calls us elsewhere to fight the good fight of faith, to run the way, the race. Work out your salvation. That idea means to produce something. The term used there means to produce something in our lives. We are to be productive or if you will, fruitful Christians. Working out our salvation is an indispensable component of the Christian life. There's no such thing as a Christian who is not actively working out his salvation. So what are we to think of the many people that profess Christ but don't show much, much interest in living for Christ? Well, I'll let you think about that, but I just raised the, the question. Matthew Henry said it this way, all our working depends on his working in us. And so that activity, that responsibility, means that we've got to do this with a, a certain attitude. A certain attitude. All our working depends on his working in us. And the attitude, Paul says at the end of verse 12, is work, work it out with fear and trembling. Now don't misunderstand that. That's, he's not saying that you need to work out your salvation because you might lose your salvation. Of course, we know that we can't lose that once God has begun working in us in a saving way. And we don't need to think of God as somehow being ready to pounce on us every time we stumble and get angry with us. Don't have that kind of fear and trembling. That's not what he's talking about. You know, Paul talked about his preaching in 1 Corinthians 2. And he said, I came to you in weakness and fear and much trembling. As a preacher, I know exactly what he's talking about. Though it may not seem like it, it's with fear and trembling, and it ought to be that I stand where I'm standing right now. The very first time I stood up to preach uh, in Jackson, Tennessee, the first church job I ever had when I was in college, and I stood up in front of this congregation, and the first person I saw was this 80-something-year-old lady who knew the Bible like the back of her hand, who knew the Bible way better than I did. And regardless of my the theological understanding of the place of women in the church, I thought she ought to be up here preaching. In the sense that she knew a lot more and was a lot more mature than I was. I was like 21 years old. Scared me to death. And I still have fear and trembling. And like I said, I should, because it is an awesome task. And no human being, especially me, is sufficient for these things. But, as Paul says, our sufficiency is from God. And so we proceed. Fear and trembling. It's just that sense of a healthy understanding of reverence for God and love for God and desire to please God in our lives. Knowing that that's what God wants us to do. So we don't need to have the attitude of the the student preparing for a big exam. On the one hand, the student shouldn't be overconfident. He didn't need to be cocky. He doesn't need to say, I don't need to study. I've got this. But on the other hand, he should not let fear of failure 
or feelings of inferiority cause him to lose heart and feel that all of his best efforts will be futile. Your attitude about your life as a Christian is very important. It needs a healthy biblical balance. And it needs what the third thing is that we see here in verse 13, we need assurance. I'm glad Paul didn't stop with just saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He goes right into saying, for God is at work in you. I want you just to let that sink in, that God is at work in you, Christian. God is at work in you. Do you understand that? You are a work in progress and God is working in you even as you are working out what he is working in. They go together. It's the difference between, theologically speaking, it's the difference between justification and sanctification. In justification, God does everything. He saves us initially. <clears throat> He's behind everything from beginning to end, of course, but it, it's a work of God alone at that point. Monergistic is the word. It's mono, God only, working his energy. Monergistic. He's doing the work. When he calls us to faith and we put our faith in Christ by his power working in us and his grace, and he declares us righteous in spite of our sin because Jesus took our sin and he paid for the guilt and condemnation our sins deserved. He did all of that. But then once we come to faith in Christ, we have sanctification, which is not a one-time act done only by God. It is an ongoing process that is a cooperative, a synergistic, S-Y-N, not S-I-N, a synergistic thing where God and the believer are at work. Because God has begun working in us and he wants us to live out the fruit of that work. He wants us to manifest the things that he is doing in our lives. We are responsible to grow. We are responsible to abide in Christ so that we will bear much fruit for him. And the assurance in all of that, of course, is God's behind that. We're doing it, but God's providing the enabling God is at work in every part of your life. Think about that. Even what you do is ultimately his doing. And we always come back to God and thank him for giving us the ability to show love to that person, to minister to a fellow Christian in need, to forgive someone when they sin against us, and on and on, obeying the Bible as he teaches us to do. You've been obeying, Paul says, now you need to continue obeying. And when you when do that, God will produce two critical fruits in us. God is at work in you to do two things. First, to have the desire to do his will, and then to have the ability to do his will, to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's what he will do for you. And we need to cry out to him, don't we, in prayer continuously. Lord, give me the desire to do your will as well as the ability to do your will. Whatever you're calling me to do. We are called to please God. You see what he said? Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We are 
to please God in our daily living. That's what God calls us to do, to please him. Not just to, to check off a bunch of things that God wants me to do. Tell the truth, forgive one another, uh, submit to the authorities over you, and on and on and on. We do them from the heart. We do them to please God. And the great thing is, when our hearts are right, our pleasing God will also be pleasing to us. We'll find joy in that. Paul talks about joy at the end of this passage. Now, last thing I want you to know, number four, is found in verses uh, 14 through 18. And this, here he gets detailed. He gets, gives some aspects of, of working out our salvation. How is this going to, to play out in our daily Christian living? The word here for work out your salvation, interestingly, was used by the ancient Greeks to describe the breaking down of something into smaller pieces. And that's exactly what we need to do. Lord, I know the general idea here. You want me to work out my salvation. Now, how do I break that down into specific areas? The word was also used by Aristotle to speak of digestion. I'm not gonna go into detail about that, okay? Breaking down into smaller pieces and all that. Um, <clears throat> you get the idea. So Paul breaks down here our general duty into some particular examples. These aren't the only ones, but they're very important. For one, he says there needs to be practical purity. Practical purity. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. Now, again, that's where the translation is different for some of your Bibles in the ESV version. Some say do all things without grumbling or questioning. Any of you have that? Without grumbling or questioning. But the word is, could be translated either way. <clears throat> in my house, when our children were young, um, it was often quoted. This is maybe the most quoted verse in the Bible in a day-to-day -day basis mostly by my wife, to the children. Rightly so, because she was around them more than I was. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Boy, do kids need to hear that. Just quote the verse. It's from God's word. God said this, not just me. But can't we as grown-ups be guilty of grumbling and disputing, grumbling and questioning? Grumbling is where you mutter under your breath, you know. Maybe it's not even an audible sound, but it's there in our hearts. Remember how they grumbled in the desert, the Israelites? In Exodus 15, the words used several times there. Interchangeably, it said they were grumbling against Moses and they were grumbling against God. Both were true. If you find yourself complaining or grumbling about someone or some aspect, and, and think especially not only about your family life, but your church life. Have you ever grumbled about someone in the church? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand. Most of us have at one time or another. Pastors can be guilty of that for sure. But you know, when you're grumbling against someone, you're really grumbling against God. 
as Exodus 15 points out. And we have to ask, what is, what, is my attitude the way it ought to be? Am I loving that person? Is this the way I should respond? Oh, you may have a legitimate reason to be concerned and upset. That's not the point here. The point is your attitude about that. And so many times we'll grumble against somebody because we have some beef with them, but we never go to them and talk to them about it. We'll talk to other people about it. But we, never, we may never talk to them about it, and we certainly haven't talked to God about it, perhaps. And disputing, questioning. Again, primarily questioning God. God, I am angry with you because of this. Why are you doing this? Rather than saying, Lord, what are you trying to teach me through this? How can I respond in a godly way to this? Do all things without grumbling and disputing or questioning. There is not only to be practical purity, but, and he goes on to say, blameless and innocent. Grumbling and disputing may be more inward and sometimes outward. Blameless and innocent children of God means that people cannot fault us for something because we're seeking to be faithful. Again, there are legitimate reasons to bring up issues, but there's a right way to do it, a biblical way to do it. And of course, he wants us to be a distinctive witness, not only practical purity, but a distinctive witness. Versus the end of verse 15 and the beginning of verse 16, he says this, among, excuse me, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life. How is, how are we living in terms of people uh, out in the world, people we work with maybe, or people we have our neighbors to, or friends with, or school association, uh, we have school associations with them. <coughs> he says here, we are to realize that we live in a fallen world. We live in the midst of a crooked and twisted or perverse generation. And you may be thinking, well, boy, that sure describes the way people are today. And yeah, I feel that way too. But don't think that this is the first generation in which that's ever happened. If you go back and read, we won't do it now, but if you go back and read, what Moses wrote in Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 5, you'll read where Moses talked about the unbelieving Israelites as a crooked and perverse or twisted generation. Paul is taking this right out of Moses. Not only their grumbling and disputing, but also their unfaithfulness. They're, they themselves now are crooked. The word crooked there is the word we get scoliosis from, curvature of the spine. They are crooked and they are perverse. They are sinful. And we see that increasingly right now in our own society and it's a sad thing to note, but it is the way the world is. We often remind ourselves, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't love Christ live like they don't love Christ. We shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be surprised at the awful things that go on. We should be saddened by it, of course. We should pray about it, but we shouldn't be surprised. Now, how do we relate to that? He says, you shun in the midst of that 
moral perversion and darkness, you shine like stars in the universe. And if you forget what that really uh, entails, unless you live out in the country, it's hard to appreciate this. The people in Paul's day, most of them, you know, they didn't have lights everywhere and they had lamps to go by at night, but they could see that pitch black sky if they go out into the fields. And sometimes we can get away far enough to where we can do that. And the, the point is the, the greater the darkness, the more brightly the stars shine. That's your job, that's my job, to shine. Remember what Wayne Herring told us last week? Jesus said, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's our calling, to shine the grace, the mercy, the love of Christ into a dark world by the way that we treat other people, non-Christian people especially, treat them with grace, but always speak truth. Speak truth in love as God gives you the wisdom to do so. Now, in that vein, he closes this passage in verses, uh, the end of verse 16 through verse 18 <clears throat> with what I would call mutual rejoicing. That's another aspect of working out our salvation. Practicing mutual rejoicing. Look at how he put it. He says, I want to be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain in the day of Christ. He wants to be able to rejoice and be glad at what he sees as the fruit of the ministry that he brought to them. Not a selfish kind of pride, but a reflection of his desire to see God glorified. And then he goes on to say, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your, of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And what he's doing there, he's taking that Old Testament practice of, of the uh, offering of the animals, the animal sacrifices, and the priest would take wine and he would pour wine over the sacrificial animal as it was being offered to God as a way of expressing atonement the need for death for atonement for sin, and pouring that wine out, it would instantly evaporate and rise up to God as a favorable sacrifice. Paul says, I'm being sacrificed. He may be alluding to his own upcoming death, which did eventually happen, of course, his execution by the Romans. And he says, I'm glad to do it. I'm willing to do it. If that's what God wants me to do for the good of you, Philippian Christians sacrificing and rejoicing at the same time because we're doing the service that God wants us to do. Sometimes it involves suffering and the result and the fruit will be rejoicing. And so he ends by saying, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Mutual rejoicing. Do we express that to each other here in this church? Are we more do we relate to some people more in terms of criticism or in terms of rejoicing? You're a brother, you're a sister in Jesus with me. That's the most important thing. Our differences have got to be worked out in love and in joy that we even have the privilege of doing this. 
When it comes to how you live the rest of your days as a Christian, don't get mixed signals. The life of the Christian is neither all left up to you, nor is it all left up to God. It is both. God, work out your salvation because God is at work in you. To will and to work for his good pleasure. God calls you to work out your salvation that he's provided you in Jesus Christ. But be assured that he does not call you to work it out alone. He will be with you and he will be in you to help you work out that salvation in these practical ways and in the other ways the New Testament, the scriptures as a whole teach us. With such a high calling and such an encouraging promise, what are we waiting for? Let's work it out. Let's pray. Now, Father, we ask you to help us work out our salvation. Help us to pray. Help us to soak in and absorb your word. Help us, Lord, to apply what your word teaches in humble servant ministry, obeying what the Bible teaches us to do, taking it seriously, examining ourselves, and seeing where we need to make changes in our lives that we might be humble servants of one another and that we might bring pleasure to you with what you see in us day after day. And we thank you that through Jesus living in us, we are able to seek this out in prayer. We ask in his name, amen. <clears throat>